I always feel like, hey, hi, hey, hi, hey, hi. Uh, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. And I'm Gideon Litchfield, and this is Have a Nice Future. A show about how fast everything is changing. I want to help you. Each week, we talk to somebody with a big, audacious idea about the future and ask, is this really the future we want? Doc. This week, our guest is Noah Rafford. I'm from the future. Who for nearly 15 years served as an in-house futurist for the government of the UAE. All right, I'm going to ask the question that everyone's wondering about. What is a futurist? Is this a real job? Well, I mean, I think some people imagine it's just, you know, a guy who sits around making predictions about the future. And there are probably some people who do just that. But Noah calls himself an applied futurist, by which he means that he studies trends, technological, economic, demographic, political, you name it. And then he works within institutions like the government to help them take those trends into account in their decision-making and their policies. So how should they think about the impact of AI, for instance? I was having a conversation with a Ghanaian friend recently, and the potential for AI and all the tools which represent in that kind of larger space has for basically dysfunctional failed states and second-order semi-functional states, which is most of the world in some argument, is absolutely huge. All right. So he sounds pretty positive on AI, but we don't actually know how that's going to shake out yet. I'm wondering if you two talked about things he has predicted accurately in the past or some things he got right. I mean, he made a pretty good call on COVID. Called that early. I stopped going into work two months before it became a commonly accepted thing. When I had to go into work, I was wearing masks and everyone was yelling at me like, you're freaking people out. Why are you doing this? And of course, we talked about climate change. We still labor under the belief that we can stop climate change. And that's just not true. Huh. That's pretty jarring to hear. What are we supposed to do with that kind of information? Well, I think there was this undercurrent to the conversation with Noah, which was that being a futurist is not just about predicting the future or even about working with governments or other institutions to capitalize on it. But it's about being ready for it emotionally. Noah is kind of like a future therapist. I can see you're really upset about this. You ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. Well, therapy typically leaves me feeling a little drained and like maybe I need three days to process whatever was discussed. So I look forward to hearing your conversation with Noah and then maybe you and I can cry together afterwards. Yeah, I mean, we may cry, but I think you'll feel somewhat uplifted because even though he says some really alarming things, uh, I think Noah takes the premise of the show and kind of flips it on its head. For him, the question isn't, is this the future we want? It's more, how do we get ready for the future that's coming, both technically and emotionally? That conversation with Noah Rafford is after the break. Noah, thanks for joining me on Have a Nice Future. Are you having a nice future? I'm having a great future. Well, I would kind of expect a futurist to be having a great future. But this future that's coming, it's climate change, it's AI, it's floundering democracies. Uh, as you readily admit, it's pretty scary. So how do we prepare for that? 
Yeah, there, there's a, a cognitive fallacy, which I like to use called the futurological uh, materialism trap. And it comes from an old book on Buddhism called spiritual materialism, right? The idea that if you just meditate enough, you're going to achieve enlightenment and that enlightenment is an escape from suffering. And if you dig deeply into Buddhism and my spiritual traditions is not the case. You know, you can't, mm. enlightenment is not the alleviation of suffering, nor is analysis the alleviation of uncertainty about the future. The futurological materialism fallacy states that there is a certain amount of data which you can analyze, and that if you just think about the right thing, if you pay attention to the right thing, you won't get surprised or you'll find the advantage. And that's an illusion. That's a trap because there is no right thing. Everything is falling apart at once. Everything is changing simultaneously. And there's no amount of data you can analyze. There's no amount of trends which you can research or time which you can spend to actually discover what's going to really happen in the future. You just end up stressing yourself out and missing the real changes which are happening around you because you don't know what to prioritize and you spend all your time in this analysis paralysis. I see. That's a that's a lovely parallel. I like that a lot. And I think it's kind of reassuring to, it is. to understand that we can spend time thinking and we don't have to find the answer. That doesn't mean that we've done a bad job. That's precisely right. Then that opens to the question of, well, what can you do? If it's not a question of data collection and of analysis, then what is the right response to have here? What is a healthy emotional response to the terror of the future and the excitement of the opportunities presented to us? And really that gets down to something which has nothing to do with analysis or even thinking. That's a much more of an emotional response to the actions which we are able to take in our lives, be they large or small. And a funny application of this is when it comes to climate change. Like objectively, it is materially irrelevant if you recycle or not. Objectively, it is absolutely irrelevant to the course of this planet if you use plastic straws or not. Right? It makes zero difference to the outcome of climate change. However, subjectively, that might be an action which you can take consciously, which makes you feel better about being aware of this issue and trying to gain some power over that huge, terrifying issue in your life through small actions. And that's important because the key thing here when you face this terror of the future is for us to be able to translate that terror into excitement and opportunity is we have to feel some sense of agency. And the only way to feel agency is through action, small, medium, and large. So taking action is more important than whether it's the right action, the, the perfect action to take. The most important is to have agency and do something. What are one or two things that you think are important, pretty likely future trends that most people are not paying enough attention to? Maybe one that's scary and one that's positive. Well, my go-to answer for this historically has been climate change and AI. Thankfully, we're becoming more and more about the, aware of the reality of the climate change. But we still labor under the belief that we can stop climate change. And that's just not true. We cannot. We cannot. Like the, the, the damage has been done. We might be able to lessen the consequences of it, but ultimately our entire lives and certainly our children's entire lives are going to be spent dealing with the consequences of climate change. And that's going to produce dramatic extraordinary historic shifts in all areas of our lives, which, which even those of us who do this on a day-to-day -day basis have a hard time really emotionally accepting, right? And we're likely to see a billion plus climate refugees in our lifetime, which is going to drive state failure, border clashes, xenophobia, racism, currency collapse, the collapse of electricity grids, food stresses, more pandemics, right? That's a terrifying mm -hmm. thing to really live with. I, about once or twice a year, I have a conversation with my children that, you know, we're pretty lucky, but it's a pretty high likelihood that we're going to be refugees at some point in our life. That's a that's quite a lot to set them up for. It's quite a lot. And what's been interesting about this in terms of both parenting, but how you or all of us deal with these sorts of scary big changes over time is when you first have that conversation, it's terrifying and you ignore it or you deny it. And the second time 
you accept a little bit more. And the third time, it's scary, but you're able to sit with that fear a little bit more. And the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time. So by having this conversation every six months, over time for years and years and years, you get to this point that is normalizing an emotional experience of dramatic change. And it Hmm. shifts from being a terrifying, life-ending horror show into something which is just like, okay, yeah, if it happens, what would we do? Where would we go? How would you adapt? What might be exciting about this? Who, who would you want to spend time with? Where would, you know, these sorts of things. It becomes more proactive because you're gradually taking away the terror and the emotional pain of our comfortable lives being ripped away from us and therefore preparing for a more exciting future. What's something that's coming up that you think we should be excited by instead of terrified by? Right. So that's the, that's the terrifying question. Um, and again, my, my traditional go-to answer here has been AI, but which was something which very few people outside of the field were paying attention to until about, I don't know, two months ago when GPT-3 came out. Okay. So like now everybody knows about GPT and its, and its variants, but you're also seeing people warning about using cases like you know someone can just use it to cook up any number of recipes for toxins and how to distribute them or you know and all sorts of possibilities for mischief that just now become much easier so what what makes you confident that it's net positive rather than negative but the thing that excites me about that is because unlike most other emerging technologies to date the degree of public discourse around the risks is exceedingly high you know like my father who's quite intelligent but pretty elderly at this point, not quite engaged in these issues, is forwarding me articles about uh, open AI's discussion of the risks of this for misinformation and for using this for toxic chemicals and um, these types of things. So the degree of public awareness of this and the degree of conversation in the public uh, in the public realm about the risks and opportunities is really quite extraordinary. It's quite extraordinarily sophisticated. And it's just the tip of the iceberg here. We're going to see all sorts of regulatory experimentation around this soon as people struggle to deal with the copyright implications and the the cross-border jurisdictional issues of these things and um, the issue of IP if you upload a document that is you know, under NDA or medical data to one of these uh, one of these services, then who owns that? Where does that go? Have you breached HEPA terms? All this stuff is really materially present right now and is being debated in every industry right now at a very advanced level. And that gives me hope. There was this survey of 700-something AI experts that um, has been making the rounds that asked them um, if they thought that, uh, you know, what was the likelihood basically of AI leading to human extinction or serious human incapacitation of the human race as a civilization, words to that effect. And 50% of these experts said they thought there was a more than 10% chance. Isn't that a pretty scary number? I think it's pretty scary, but I also think that's a, a pretty honest assessment of the existential risks that we face, not just with AI, but really in terms of climate, in terms of nuclear exchange, in terms of additional pandemics, in terms of the total collapse of the financial system. You know, I think that part of being sort of future savvy in today's world is looking clear-eyed at the real terrible potentials of these technologies and not just turning your back on them like a bad parent who doesn't want to have anything to do with the world their children is living in, right? But actually really engaging in these questions. Now, is 10% too high? Does that mean we shouldn't try to explore the implications and benefits of this? I would argue no. Does it mean though we should slow down the deployment of it maybe? Is that even possible? That's a fair question. Yeah, I, I, is, But it certainly makes the case that I think that you're making, which is that we should be talking about this a hell of a lot more. Absolutely. And that's my fundamental point when it comes to AI. The thing that is encouraging about that is that unlike, you know, greenhouse gases or cigarettes or, you know, the dangers of vaping or the dangers of, of uh, automobile reliance or obesity or, or diabetes, you know, these chronic conditions, 
unlike so many of these other large social issues, there is a pretty robust conversation going on around AI because it has exploded into everyone's lives in such a public way that people can experience on a day-to-day personal basis. And I think that's at least the beginning of an exciting conversation around this. And that, coupled with the extraordinary potential which this offers, is fundamentally exciting because one way or another, we're going to have a forcing moment in the next decade or so between climate, economic failure, state collapse, large-scale populist movements, and even potentially revolution, and the absolute uh, destruction of much of the labor force by AI, right? That's going to force us to fundamentally reevaluate what we mean for as a society. What does economy mean? What does society mean? What is the world that we actually want to build in here? And that conversation is going to probably be violent. It's probably going to be uncomfortable. It's going to have different forms in different countries, but it's going to become the genesis of what the next couple versions or iterations of human society look like through a decade or two of experimentation and discord and strife, right? And that's freaking exciting because the world is falling apart and we need to start building a new world. I can't wait. And I'm also thinking of the privilege that people like you and I have to be the ones who can lead and and convene and take part in that conversation instead of just being washed back and forth by the consequences of it. Absolutely. But, you know, one of the things that obviously we're extraordinarily privileged to be able to think about these things and talk about these things. But one of the things that encourages me, I mean, I I still live in Dubai, and Dubai is the crossroads of human civilization. There are more expats who weren't born in the UAE living in Dubai than any other city in the world, right? And you have these conversations in in coffee shops, in at the market, uh, in your office with so many different people and people from all walks of life are engaging with this. And I tell you, the people who I found who are most excited by this are people coming from developing contexts, right? This is South Asia, this is East Asia, this is North Africa. Why? Because these are the people who have historically been screwed out of benefits of the 20th century globalized project. They've been the one on the receiving end of the extractive mechanism. And now suddenly, at least for the moment, there's the glimmer of hope, the possibility that that system is falling apart. Cracks in the world order are emerging, and we have at our fingertips these extraordinarily generative tools to try to build new businesses and build new uh, companies and societies and new ways of doing things. And people are excited, right? Like, talk to an 18-year-old. That's so interesting that they are seeing the opportunity and the excitement in this. That, that, that kind of gives me hope as well. Absolutely. Talk to a 14-year-old Indian kid about this in Bangalore. They are losing their mind with the potential for this, right? It's incredible. Talk to, talk to I was having a conversation with a Ghanaian friend recently, and the potential for AI and all the tools which represent in that kind of larger space has for basically dysfunctional failed states and sec, you know, second order semi-functional states, um, which is most of the world in, in some argument, right, is absolutely huge. And so right. there shouldn't be a sort of sense of privilege guilt around talking about this stuff because we're not the only ones talking about it. And in fact, we're probably the right. ones who are most uh, modestly using this. There's a lot of weird experiments going on in the shadows that are going to define what the tomorrow looks like. So Dubai has been home for you for... That's 13, 14 years. Right. And you spent a lot of that period working as the chief futurist for the government of Dubai. And Dubai is a place that makes, you know, some people in the West kind of uncomfortable. It's not a democratic government. It's kind of not an egalitarian place, very advanced in things like surveillance tech. Why did you spend so long there and what what did you learn from it? Why is Dubai so important to you? It's, it's such a good question because Dubai is one of those things which is uh, means so many different things to so many different people depending on the eyes through which you look at it. And uh, I think that it's quite typical, certainly, um, 
if you've never been there, if you just read about it in the press, particularly if you grew up in the West, Western Europe, UK, uh, France, United States, that uh, you get a particularly filtered version of this. When I first moved there, uh, working in the prime minister's office, the thing that was just so uh, profoundly shocking and surprising and invigorating to me was that it was, like I say, it was globalization with the wool pulled off your eyes. It was this huge transit hub of ideas, of people, of attitudes, of beliefs, of goods, of services from literally almost every country in the world, living together, working together, trading together, uh, without the pretense and the intermediation that we normally experience each other through. You know, most of us don't spend a lot of time in India or China or at North Africa or Russia or Ukraine or even other states in America, right? And so in that sense, it gives you this extraordinary vantage point to see how literally, like I'll give you an example, like one of the things which, um, which I gained a tiny degree of notoriety for in my job was like, I, I predicted COVID early, right? And it's not because I'm really smart or I have some vast surveillance apparatus around me or something of that nature. It's because, because I live in Dubai and there's two thirds of the world's population within an eight hour flight there and almost all economic activity in the region comes through Dubai, um, I have lots of friends in Singapore. I have lots of friends in China. I have lots of friends in India. And I'm in touch with them on a relatively frequent basis. So when things started unfolding in Wuhan and in China with COVID in you know, end of December, beginning of January, it didn't take a genius to figure out how many flights a day are there between China and the UAE and to think that this is something which could really break. Right. And that's something that you could just see from where you sat. Precisely. Basically. Precisely. And so I think that's what's so extraordinary about Dubai is it really is a city of the future in the sense that because it is the epicenter of uh, all of these different threads of human civilization and of economy and politics and ideology and belief and culture, uh, everything is kind of there. Would you argue that Dubai is actually doing a better job of developing this technology in a way that is um, attentive to the to ethics and to social needs? Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely would. I think there's a dozen examples. I mean, we could take cryptocurrency and blockchain as an example. Uh, early on, we started working in that space in 2014. We created a, a industry and a civil society group called the Dubai Global Blockchain Council in 2014 that had all the big banks, all the big regulators, all the big tech companies, uh, a bunch of the most uh, interesting startups at the time, as well as a bunch of academics and entrepreneurs in it. And what did we do? We just first started talking about it. What do we mean by this? What is this thing, right? Well, this was a big collaborative civil society effort. And we did a bunch of public events, started having conversations in the media about it, building a dialogue around this in the public sphere. And then after kind of coming up with some understanding of what the risks and the opportunities were, each of the people in the organization in the industry association started to uh, started to do experiments and prototypes, and proof of concepts. What does it mean for a bank? What does it mean for a logistics company? What does it mean for a car company? What does it mean for uh, education certification and degrees and for the healthcare authority? And by doing these little experiments, we were able to do several things at once, which was first remove the emotional terror from the novelty of this new way of doing things, which is the biggest barrier to, 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 to change. And second, uh, provide strong coalitions of people who supported it in the industry, who had skin in the game and who were willing to test it out, that led to not only the legalization of crypto in, the, in, in, in 2016, but also a very ambitious strategy to implement cryptocurrency technologies in all of the public sector applications. Uh, and, you know, I think that's a, I think what in the U.S. is still arguing over how to regulate this stuff. What's been your best call and your worst call about the future? Um, 
I think COVID was a great call, you know, called that early. Mm -hmm. Uh, I stopped going into work two months before, uh, before it became a common, commonly accepted thing. When I had to go into work, I had, I had to wear, I was wearing masks and everyone was yelling at me like, you're freaking people out. Why are you doing this? Stop this. <laughs> Our staff is getting scared. We, we don't have an official statement out yet, but I said, no, this is a big deal. This is coming. And in fact, you know, my, my COVID escape story was like a scene from the movie children of men. You know, I, like I escaped Dubai uh, two days before the border closed. I arrived in the UK to pick up my kids and family uh, managed to convince them in a 48 hour period that this was a really big deal. We rented a car, drove through the channel to France, the two hours before the borders closed, found a place to stay two hours before the, the national lockdown in France occurred and spent four months in an organic pig farm in the, in, in, in Haute-Provence. And it was that sounds awesome. like a good call. It was awesome. So like, that was definitely probably my shining moment as a, as an applied futurist there. Um, and as a father. And as a father, yeah. So, I mean, it, like, that was the moment where all those years of conversation were like, we might be refugees, guys. Things might change really surprising in dramatic ways really fast. All that stuff paid off. And what was your worst call? What was my worst call? I, I'd have to say self-driving cars. Um, what did you say about them? Well, I was, big on, I was big on autonomous transport quite early. And, you know, part of my background is as an urban planner. Uh, and I took one of the first delegations of all senior Dubai government officials to San Francisco back in like 2014 or so, 2014, 15, you know, we visited Google X before it was Waymo and, you know, a lot of these uh, self-driving car companies then. And, and it looked to me that the, um, development curve of AI and computer vision and autonomy was going to yield pretty dramatic changes in the mobility space, uh, over the next five, 10 years. And, you know, when you're talking about road building programs, that means you have to start mm. changing the way you're doing things now. So we went really big on, on self-driving cars and autonomous transport and developed a big uh, autonomous transport strategy. And just the industry hasn't really gotten there. What keeps you up at night? Well, we certainly have not seen the last pandemic, that's for sure. Mm. Uh, you know, I was reading a study the other day by a development institute. They were estimating uh, something like a 25% chance of another corona scale uh, pandemic within the next 10 years and a 50% chance within the next 20 years. You know, that's that's just one of those things that is so far beyond our control uh, that we have really not prepared for that would really, really ruin a lot of people's days. So I'm really worried about that. I'm still worried about uncontrolled nuclear releases. You know, um, mm. I'm really worried. Actually, speaking about the pandemic thing, I'm really worried a lot of the uh, evidence I'm seeing coming out of the Siberian tundra that's thawing. You know, there's all sorts of unbelievably nasty viruses from 15,000 years ago, like new strains of anthrax and stuff, which have been lying dormant in the Siberian tundra, which are just going to get released over the next decade or two. And we have... You started talking about the tundra, and I thought you were going to say methane. I wish. I wish methane was... <laughs> methane's a slow, a long, slow problem for us. But we, you know, we, we are likely to face some emerging infectious disease or virus coming out of melted tundra in Siberia sooner rather than later. And we have no idea what that looks like. And all the biologists, which I've uh, been reading around the space are pretty freaking terrified about it okay and then finally what gives you cause for optimism i mean it's exciting right it's exciting like i just started my own company an ai company which is super exciting to be able to have you know really the the power of billions of dollars of comp computational data analysis at your hands for pennies you know and to be able to build mm -hmm. niche services around that build like really valuable companies around little niches that serve a specific audience really really well it's so exciting 
right? There's there's so many life-changing amounts of money and life-changing businesses which are going to be made in the next two, three years around AI by itself, right? That mm. uh, that it should give people hope, right? It should give people some immediate day-to-day sense of uh, encouragement and enthusiasm that we can actually do something that is definitely going to change our lives and our families' lives, if not, quote-unquote, save the world. Um, but, you know, net-net at a whole, so many people are experimenting in these spaces, be it from biotech to uh, to new financial services to new applications of AI, that uh, it's just a deeply exciting. Noah, you are one of the people that I know that most lives in the future. And I'm going to sign off by telling you to have a nice future because I'm pretty sure you're going to have one. Let's have a nice future together. Thank you, Noah. Thanks, Gideon. So how did that make you feel, Lauren? Well, let me just say, I would love to be a fly on the wall during one of Noah Rafford's dinner conversations with his kids. Right. The ones where he says you're going to be refugees. Yes. Every six months or so, just, you know, call for the family meeting and say, kids, we're preparing for the worst. I can't tell whether that instills unnecessary fear in future generations or whether that's actually the smart thing to do. It seems like it's a pretty smart thing to do. It seems like a smart thing to do to me. I mean... We're afraid of, we can't imagine conversations like that because we're precisely afraid of, of that possibility. Can you, could you imagine becoming a refugee? But people have grown up in all sorts of different times of history with all kinds of different expectations about what the future is or even the concept of the future. So I feel like if you, if you get people used to the fact that it's going to look or, or could look a certain way, then maybe it's a lot less traumatic when it finally happens. Right. And it made me think also, based on what he said about pandemics, that maybe we should be having those conversations once every three to six months amongst ourselves to say, how are we going to handle it if or when the next pandemic happens? Right. It's, you know, I mean, it's almost like being preppers in the U.S., people who are just expecting the worst and and are ready for it to happen. It's, you know, it's, it's easy to laugh at them, but then there is there is something about that feeling of being feeling ready, feeling secure that even if the worst happens, you can handle it. I think that might be psychologically helpful to a, a lot of people, especially in the world we're going into. The second thing that came to mind was I wasn't sure what to make of his approach to thinking about climate change. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on this, because on the one hand, he's saying we should do small things in order to feel a sense of agency. But on the other hand, he basically says that what we do does not matter. We could recycle all the stuff we're supposed to recycle. Um, we could bike to work, as I've started doing, and it just doesn't matter. That was a little bit depressing to hear, right? Because this recent IPCC report makes it clear just how dire things are and that we really need swift, wide-scale reduction in the use of fossil fuels if we're going to avoid reaching catastrophic global temperatures. And yet Noah's saying it doesn't matter. Everything we do doesn't matter. I mean, I think... How did you square this? I think the way I took it was he was saying, yes, individual actions like, you know, biking to work one day or recycling the bottle are not going to make a difference. But I think if we are doing these things, taking responsibility for the way our actions might impact the climate, then two things happen. One, you get a sense of agency that I think is just good for your mental well-being. And two, you become part of this fabric of people who are taking these actions, thinking about these things and making the question of climate more central in their lives just by virtue of action. And I think it influences the decisions that we make around which politicians we support or which campaigns we support or which companies we buy from. And Mm -hmm. those decisions ultimately influence the people 
whose decisions do matter because those are the big policy uh, and commercial decisions that ultimately change the course of uh, what fuels we use or what what energy gets expended. And here's the other thing that you guys talked about that really stood out to me. AI, right? And I thought he really helped put this in perspective for me because we as journalists are a little bit alarmed right now by the release of generative AI. And I think we should be. But Noah also brought up a fair point about how there may be a 14-year-old kid in another part of the world. I mean, he mentions Bangalore specifically that is seeing generative AI as a tool or as an opportunity, and that some of the technological developments of the past 20 years may have left large portions of the population behind, right? And this is a chance for people to actually sort of get on on even ground. Um, At the same time, I'm not entirely convinced that generative AI will be any different from those advancements because we're already seeing how it's being released within a sort of capitalistic structure and how people are we people are being used as inputs for the training data. What did you make of that? You know, of course, there are going to be the 14-year-olds in Bangalore who will be able to have opportunities they wouldn't have had otherwise because of generative AI. For me, there's always this this quote that sticks in my mind from Zainab Tefekci, who's a sociologist of technology, in a piece that she wrote that I commissioned. Um, and it is, power always learns and powerful tools always fall into its hands. And the point that she's mm-hmm. making is, you know, the structural, political, economic power arrangements that exist tend to reassert themselves. And they are slower to catch up to new technologies, but they ultimately do catch up. So I am skeptical that these tools are going to fundamentally create a more level playing field. They will give opportunities to some. Say a little bit more about that. I mean that we will see the kid from Bangalore become the leader of a multi-billion dollar company. And in fact, that's already happened with some of the top companies in the US. Um, But those power structures that they come into are existing power structures. So, uh, you know, is is India going to overtake the US because of generative AI? No. Is India going to overtake the US for other reasons? Possibly. Uh, but I don't think technology is is the, the driving force there. It, it's demographic questions, it's economic questions, it's, it's geopolitical questions that are driving um, who ultimately ends up on top. Yeah, and especially since these generative AI tools are coming from these capitalistic enterprises. Uh, I mean, they, there are roots in academic research, but right now it's it's kind of a race amongst these companies, these tech companies, to just put things out into the world and like best each other. Yeah, That doesn't seem to bode super well for us as humans. We're all humans, but it, that doesn't seem to bode super well for us as, you know, the average tech consumers. You know, one of the things that, for me was interesting was how he talked about the UAE as this transit hub for people all over the world. I think a lot about the future of government and democracy. And one of the things that's clear is that the notion that I grew up with, that liberal democracy is just going to take over the entire world, that's not going to happen. And what Noah was hinting at for me was a future in which there are many different kinds of government systems around the world. And it's not necessarily obvious that the democracies are the ones that are best at serving their citizens or at keeping up with the pace of technological development and how to regulate it. I think he he described how he felt like Dubai is much more on top of the pace of technological change and how to keep it uh, doing, doing the best things for its society. Um, so I feel like that's an uncomfortable 
position for us in the Western world because we grew up with this notion that our political system is is necessarily going to yield the best results, the most equal results for everybody. Um, and Noah got me thinking a lot about just how true or untrue that is. How hopeful did you feel walking away from your conversation with him? I felt more hopeful simply because I saw from him that there is a way to think about the future that doesn't require you to feel like you have to be able to predict the future. It's more about a mindset of preparedness for it. Now, sure, that, I think that also comes with a certain amount of privilege that someone like Noah has or some someone like you or I have, that we, we're in a good position to be able to capitalize on wherever the future is going and be prepared for it. That isn't true of everyone. But at least it gave me some reassurance that you don't have to know where things are going in order to survive them. So it's not like he told you we're going to have a nice future, but he told you we can at least be prepared for a not nice future? Um, yeah. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Have a Nice Future is hosted by me, Lauren Good. And me, Gideon Litchfield. If you like the show, you can leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us to hear more episodes. Have a Nice Future is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. Danielle Hewitt and Lena Richards from Prologue Projects produce the show. See you back here next Wednesday.